The following program gives personal opinions and is intended to provide entertainment and information only. It is not considered to be any form of legal, investment, appraisal, or inspection advice whatsoever. Listeners are encouraged to secure two to three bids from competing contractors for specific issues pertinent to their home or situation. Welcome to Real Estate Unveiled, where we pull back the shades to give you the truth and nothing but the truth about real estate with a laser focus on everything about home inspections and real estate appraisals. That's right. We're here to demystify the real estate process and take the fear and anxiety out of the equation to unearth the real scoop about home inspections and the real estate appraisal process. Oh, if homes could talk. Well, that's our job. I'm Tim Hance, board certified master home inspector and owner of All Islands Home Inspections. And I'm Elizabeth Hance, Washington State certified real estate appraiser and owner of All Islands Appraisal. Consider us your truth tellers, unbiased ambassadors of and mouthpieces for the home. We're delighted to be here. Thanks for tuning in. Today, we're excited to have Lori Reese, designated broker with Remax Whatcom County Incorporated, serving as full-time manager and co-owner of the company. First licensed in 1980 after earning a degree in business administration from the Western Washington University, Lori and Dean Reese started Remax Whatcom County in 1991. Since then, the company has grown to three offices in Bellingham, Sutton Valley, and Linden. In 2015, Remax Gateway in Anacortes was founded. Lori was past president of the Whatcom County Association of Realtors and Bellingham Whatcom MLS, state director for Washington Association of Realtors, Realtor of the Year, Whatcom County Association of Realtors, Lifetime Achievement, Whatcom County Association of Realtors, lots of awards, Lifetime Member of the Whatcom County Association of Realtors, Broker Owner of the Year, REMAX Pacific Northwest, Pace Setter Award for REMAX LLC, and a finalist for Whatcom Women in Business 2009. Lori, it's great to have you here. What a list of accomplishments. Um, thank you so much for participating in our program. And thanks for inviting me, Tim. Just one quick clarification. I yeah. do have a co-owner with my REMAX office in Anacortes, REMAX Gateway. Um, Blake Boatman is my partner and the managing broker um, in that office. Fantastic. Thanks for clarifying. And we'll have to bring him in for a, a podcast in the future, I hope. He'd love it. Awesome. So, Lori, one of the reasons I called you in is because you are, uh, as I understand it, a, a designated broker and the owner of a company, of a real estate company, where you oversee hundreds of agents. And um, agents come, I didn't want to choose one realtor because choosing a realtor can be, you know, like Tim or Liz choosing favorites, which I didn't want to do. So you're a great um, you know, uh, advocate for the real estate industry. And you've seen so much, you know, over the years that you've been involved. So we are home inspectors and appraisers and the, from the home inspection perspective, you know, what are some of the issues that you see coming up with realtors approaching you, for instance, about home inspection issues? Maybe, maybe some of the, um, common, yeah, common, some of the common issues that come up and present. Um, one of the common issues is when a buyer will have a home inspection done, hire a home inspector, and there will be a laundry list of items, and they're unsure which ones need to be corrected. They have a propensity sometimes to ask for everything when they're not all necessarily critical items. They're watch items. We get involved more when it comes to negotiating those inspection repairs, 
and or a, an amount of money to cover something that the seller may be unwilling or unable financially to fix. For example, if the roof comes back and has a two-year life remaining, uh, that may not be enough for the lender, that will not be enough for the lender to make the loan. And so we need to negotiate maybe a new roof on a property. Well, the tricky part becomes when our weather last month, there were six inches of snow on the ground, and it's a little tough to get a roofer out when there's that kind of weather, and yet the closing date is 10 days from now. How do we negotiate that? How do we make sure that the buyer is protected and gets that repair done or that major item done um, and the seller is still going to be responsible for paying for the property. So it can entail getting bids. It's a complicated thing. And we also have to write that up in the contract. So it's clear for all parties. And I get involved a lot in the actual structuring of those addendums to make sure everybody's best interests are protected. That sounds like a tough situation. Uh, really unique and one that could could is very understandable in in um, trying to, the timeline that's involved in the lenders. So what how do you structure something like that, especially if there's a lender involved and they were requiring a certain amount of time? Was there a holdback? It depends on the lender. Uh, it depends on the seller. But if that is obviously the that would be the best case scenario is if we can ask the seller, uh, to go ahead and put money aside into a trust account to cover the cost of that repair. If there's a lender involved, a lender will normally ask for more than the amount of the bid. So the first thing we would do would be to go out and get bids from preferably more than one roofing company, although that can be tricky because they're all busy right now. Um, and we take that amount that the buyer and the seller agree on, and then we go to the lender. So there's a lot of negotiations and moving parts. Ask the lender if they would be um, okay, with doing a holdback, it's usually one and a half times, then the seller has to agree to that. That money is then put in trust, the transaction closes, and when the roof is completed, that money is then released to the contractor, the roofer, and if there's any remaining funds, they would be given back to the seller. That, what I just said, all has to be put into a contract that all parties understand and are in agreement with and that everybody is responsible for living up to their end of the bargain. So the buyer gets the benefit of a new roof, the seller gets the benefit of a closed sale and a fair price for that roof, and everybody has to be made happy. And that's just for the roof. And that's just for the roof. Then we can run into wiring, we can run into foundation, we can run into standing water, we can run into rodents and pests and appliances that don't work, and soft spots around the toilet in the bathroom is a very common one where there's been water leakage, um, maybe there's mold in the attic. That's another one that we deal with. So there's all kinds of things that the inspector, and you're the expert on this, may call out, and then it's left to the realtors and the brokers to negotiate an outcome. I, I always feel a little bit badly after an inspection. You know, it, you, you hand the report to the clients and the realtor, and you're like, good luck. Yep. <laughs> right. Make this work. Make this work. So, you know, an inspection should uh, identify issues that are present at the time of inspection, but it should also prioritize them with respect to, you know, what's a major issue? What's a safety issue? What's a necessary repair? And then there can also be a lot of minutiae in there as well. I think you would agree with me. And what I usually advise clients is, 
you know, focus on the big things because the seller isn't required to do anything except install carbon monoxide detectors in the house. And typically they'll double strap a water heater because most appraisers call that out and lenders want that to be done. But depending upon, you know, if you have a really hot market like we've had over the past five years, most sellers are, are less willing to affect repairs than they would be in a buyer's market where, you know, they're just happy to have a buyer. There are lots of buyers out there and have been for the past five years. So, you know, in my experience, I've found sometimes major issues aren't even negotiable because the sellers have three or four backup offers and it's kind of take it or leave it. It does make it difficult. Uh, and we will have buyers who say, let's not even include an inspection in our contract. We always recommend a home inspection, even if it's not going to be a part of the contract or a negotiating item with the seller for the buyer's best interest. It's amazing how many homes can look wonderful on the outside, but after a home inspection is completed, there may be some very major issues that are not readily apparent when you're just walking through a property. That being said, of course, the buyer does have that opportunity to waive their home inspection we do ask that they do it in writing because we want to make sure that they've been made aware that we do recommend it. And if they do choose not to have it done, then that's going to be on them. And another one that we get asked a lot, and you can address this hopefully, is, well, my uncle is a contractor. My dad 20 years ago used to frame houses. So I'm just going to have them come and do a quick walkthrough on the property. How do you explain to a buyer that that's usually not a very good idea. It's, it's not a good idea. In fact, when I buy a property and I like to think I'm the best home inspector since sliced bread, I will not inspect a property that I am personally buying because I have rose-colored glasses. I'm looking at this property with emotion and I can't see the negatives with the property as well as I could were I unbiased. And so I think having an unbiased, really experienced home inspector go through the house, regardless of your level of it or acumen with home inspections or construction is really important. The other thing that's important to realize is that because the home inspector is unbiased, what they write into the report has more credibility with the seller and the realtors involved. And so you have a better negotiating position. If I'm buying a house myself and inspect it myself, I, I'm going to tear it to pieces, right? And the seller is going to say, you know, you're biased. I'm not going to do anything you want to do. Whereas if you have an unbiased professional coming in, it lends more credibility, in my opinion, to the findings. And then the realtors usually will advise their clients, listen, this is an issue that's going to come up with every potential buyer. It's something that we should address either with a, um, you know, uh, however it's addressed, either having it repaired or reducing your price, um, that kind of stuff. Or in a hot market, the buyer may just choose to go ahead and purchase anyway, but at least they're aware of maybe some deferred maintenance, things are going to have to be addressing in the near future or even in the next few years. It's, it's interesting because I just had somebody give me this five-star review because I did a great home inspection for them and he didn't get an inspection before buying the property. A year later, he's having some issues. So he says, you know what, I'm going to get an inspection. So I come out and discover a whole bunch of stuff that he had no clue about. It was close to $100,000 worth of issues. Oh, wow. And he was so distraught, you know, not, not distraught. He knew that there was an issue, but he's like, had I only had a home inspection and he was a contractor, had been for 20 years before. And he's like, had I only known about this, I wouldn't have bought the house or I would have reduced the price and negotiated this with the seller. And he's like, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but at least he got the home inspection so he could address and see where he could focus his efforts now that he knew what he had. 
Right. And this reminds me of a part in the standard purchase and sale agreement that addresses appraisals also. And it says, you know, that the buyer has the right to get an appraisal, even if they're paying all cash or if the industry is um, has started to offer what's called a property inspection waiver, which is if the property's valuation is below a certain price point. A lot of lenders will write the will go ahead and lend on it without an appraisal being performed. So, do you do you often recommend that an appraisal get done in cash situations or in um, similar uh, lender type situations like that? It's just like home inspections. We always recommend them, even if it is an all cash transaction. We wouldn't necessarily use a financing addendum because they're not applying for financing. But there is a separate standalone appraisal addendum that extracts the verbiage out of the financing addendum and gives people the opportunity to choose an appraiser, have an appraisal done, negotiate if the appraisal comes in at a different price than the sales price. And then it also spells out what happens then. Does the seller have to reduce the price? Does the buyer have to come up to the price? Can they meet somewhere in the middle or worst case scenario, they can't agree and the transaction fails and doesn't go together. Again, that being said, it, it's interesting. We're in a shifting market right now. Inventory is starting to slowly increase. Interest rates are still phenomenal. And uh, so we're going back to a lot of the old recommended practices of including things that buyers were waving right and left and sellers were insisting on over the last year or two in this market where a property would come on the market and have 12, 13, 20 offers in the first day and that is truly what we call a seller's market and the buyer. It, it can be very challenging and it can be really frustrating. There's buyers that literally dropped out of the home buying search and said, you know what, we're going to wait this out. We're going to sit on the sidelines, wait for things to settle down. And um, But back to your question, yes, an appraisal is always a good idea, not just for the valuation, but appraisers also, to a limited degree, do look at other things like roofs and foundations and things like that. It's another set of eyes. It's another third-party opinion. And they're the experts. We are certainly not appraisers and we're not home inspectors. Right. And that's a, that. this might be a good opportunity to point out the difference between a broker, broker's price opinion, a BPO, and an appraisal because they're all different things, but they all um, tend to get very um, confused within the market and people one of the questions I get probably at least half the time when I answer uh, my phone from private parties is, well, what's the difference between an appraisal and a, and a, a CMA or a broker's price opinion? And um, I, I try always to articulate it, um, but it, it tends to be that I'm rambling on and on and on about how I'm going to make adjustments to comparables, not just pull you know, a list. So um, is that something you run into a lot? The broker price opinion, we are asked to do more uh, sometimes in the case of an estate when someone has passed away and they need a property valuation done, just an opinion of value. And as I was talking to someone earlier, it's like the thousand mile view of the property. It may not even entail physically seeing the property. It may be a matter of going online, pulling up other comparable homes similar that have sold uh, like that home. So it's a very broad opinion. A CMA uh, market analysis is a comparable market analysis is something that realtors usually prepare uh, for listing presentations. 
And while they're nowhere near as detailed as a full-blown appraisal like you do, we do pull comparable sales. We do look at other homes that have sold in the neighborhood. We do try and make adjustments for a varying number of bedrooms or bathrooms or location or view without deviating too far from what we call the subject property. So that we're getting closer to appraisals, but that's about as far as realtors go. When it goes beyond that into the appraisal realm, that's where the professionals like you come in. This might be a good opportunity to talk about when you are a home uh, buyer or a homeowner and you have the appraisers come out to your property and you might have a CMA that was provided you with a list of, of properties. Is it okay to share that list with the appraiser? Is that something that um, that is okay? A lot of people seem to have a misconception about, you know, even talking to an appraiser and, and, and what you can ask and what you can say. Um, and so I, I would love for us just to talk about the process and sort of try to demystify the, um, the differences and that the appraiser is not um, the boogeyman, the bad guy. No, <laughs> they're, woman. they're not, they're not, <laughs> right. They're not the bad guy. I think the biggest misconception on appraisals is who hires them. Because the buyer traditionally pays for the appraisal, they think that the appraiser is working for them, and they're not. The appraiser is hired by the lender. And so the lender picks the appraiser, pays the appraiser, and as far as providing information to the appraiser, I think you would find it very helpful if I had done, for example, I remodeled my condominium that I moved into 10 years ago extensively. I had an entire book of all the receipts. Um, I had a master list of all the improvements I had done. And I know the appraiser found that very, very helpful when he was coming in to do the appraisal for my loan um, to be able to actually see things that may not be readily apparent. I had a new upgraded furnace. I added air conditioning. Um, I had upgraded all my plumbing. And those are things that I would find absolutely no reason not to share with an appraiser Um, comparables, any information that you can give them as long as you're not trying to change their mind on evaluation. (laughs) And again, a misconception is when an appraisal does occasionally come in low, the first thing the buyer wants to do is call the appraiser and yell at them because surely they just didn't get it. And we have to remind them, number one, you can't do that. Number two, again, the lender is the person who you need to be talking to and let the lender be the one to contact the appraiser and if there's going to be any adjustments made, um, then it needs to go that route. That right. is something that the realtor or the buyer or the seller does not normally, cannot normally contact the appraiser directly to argue over something like that. Right. Whenever we discuss value-related questions, that's kind of when the door to an appraiser's, um, the conversation will end. Um, there's always um, an open door for information, sharing mm-hmm. of, of renovations and upgrades, and even pointing out um, my neighbor's house, it's just like mine, is now listed or is pending or should be a pretty free flow of information back and forth, and even how the appraisal process is conducted, how sales are selected, how the um, the appraiser approaches adjustments in general. Those things should all be something that we're all comfortable talking about. Now, when when you start to get down to the amount of an adjustment or um, and an appraiser should be able to answer the question why a certain comparable sale was not used. Um, so those but yes, those questions need to come. I would suggest even if there's an agent involved that they have sort of a one step back from the transaction perspective and they could contact um, the lender on behalf and and make or at least help the parties involved um, 
prepare some information if they would like to send it through the lender to the appraiser to consider. Yeah. One, one thing that, especially in this market that an appraiser wouldn't necessarily know is back to my example of 15 offers on a property in the first three hours. And so the property, as an example, is listed for $400,000 and you're handed a contract and asked to do financing on a sales price of $450,000. So it's $50,000 over the asking price. You have no way of knowing as an appraiser that there were 15 offers and the property went under contract by noon the first day it went on the market. I would think that kind of information would be generally helpful to know the activity level, the demand level that took place in order to get the price where it is, that the price wasn't just adjusted upwards to increase a loan value because they didn't have a down payment. It was actually increased upwards because there was a very high level of demand for that particular property for whatever reason. Right. And understanding your inventory and your absorption rate should help the appraiser. But also just having that information that there were multiple offers and um, there are backup offers, things like that, that are available. So yeah, that's, that's a that's information that is welcome and should always be shared when it can be. Right. You know, another misconception with appraisals that I had years ago was, you know, basement or subgrade uh, square footage. And that, that always, we sold this house on Orcas and the appraiser appraised the top level, you know, it's like a 3000 square foot house, you know, 1500 each square foot, each level. And the appraiser called it a 1500 square foot house and then there's like 1,500 square feet of basement that's valued at significantly less, which I wanted to call that appraiser up and get upset. So maybe maybe you guys can talk a little bit about basement or below grade square footage. You know, absolutely. Appraisers love to talk about square footage. <laughs> well, or you have the uh, here's another one that we get is the two story entryway with the high ceilings and the big chandelier. And do you count the square footage on the second floor all the way over to where the wall is? Even though there's no floor there, that's another tricky one. I'm looking at you. Oh, so the answer to that is no. If there's no floor space, you don't count it. Um, so vaulted areas are noted because they can be wonderful. They can let in extra light. They can add a very um, wonderful foyer or entrance to a home. Um, but the if you can't stand on it, it's not square footage. And uh, good rule to, of thumb to add to that, even in those upper level houses that have been, um, maybe the attics have been finished out. We need at least a five foot ceiling height um, along the sides. And often those ceilings will be peaked, so it needs to be at least seven feet high in the majority of the space. But the appraiser stops measuring typically at five feet. So even if the slope comes all the way down to to the floor, um, they're going to pick that five foot mark and cut it off. Um, this has a lot to do with measurement standards and appraisers. There actually isn't a standardized measurement um, for the appraisal industry or for agents uh, or for the assessor's office, which is something that um, I think everyone could benefit from because as soon as we get a consistent and reliable square footage um, standard out there, then all of the data will start to become um, more and more accurate. Um, so I spent five years working for an assessment office prior to opening my own appraisal business. So I know that the taxation, I know how they measure houses, and it's from the exterior and typically to the nearest half foot. Um, so we're going to count the exterior walls. Um, 
The five-foot um, ceiling height minimum comes into a standard called ANSI. It's A-N-S-I is the acronym. That is the one that appraisers use most often as a measurement standard, and they cover things like stairwells and vaulted ceilings and bay bump outs and um, whether or not you would count the little um, bump in that a fireplace has. So there's all those little small items. But Tim, you brought up the question about um, below grade square footage. And an appraiser is obligated through those ANSI uh, measurement standards and through most lenders uh, like Fannie Mae overlay um, to count any area that's below grade as a basement area. And below grade is defined as any part of the exterior wall touching dirt or what would be dirt like a, a retaining wall or concrete blocks that are used to hold um, the soil up. So oftentimes you'll have a, a really nice space that's below grade. It may have full height windows, and but there's just one corner of the house where the grade has come up, you know, maybe six inches or a few feet. And the appraiser is obligated to, to value that section of the house on the lower level of the sales grid. The square footage is still there. So in your example, Tim, where we had 1,500 above and 1,500 below, in the sales grid, you should see the GLA gross living area of 1,500 square feet on the top, and then you should see another 1,500 square feet right directly below that labeled as finished. Um, and appraisers only count areas that are finished, continuous with the um, living, all of the living spaces, so you don't have to go into the garage or outside of the building to access that space, and also heated. So we have ceiling height requirements, heating requirements, finish requirements, and how do you get in and out of that space? One question we do get a lot, especially from a seller who's going to list their property, is they get quite upset when they go look at the realist tax records and see that the assessor's office only has their home listed as a two-bedroom, and it's really a four-bedroom. And they have it as 1,700 square feet, and when they purchase the home, they have an appraisal that says it was 1,900 square feet. And they don't understand the difference, and I think you touched on it when you were working at the assessor's office. They look at the outside perimeter more? Yeah, I would say um, actually the the fee appraiser should have measured the exterior walls too, unless we're talking about a condominium property, in which case we do Different interior, yeah, interior measurements. But um, those things actually should be really close to being identical. And that particular property owner um, has some recourse. The first thing they really should do, maybe prior to listing, is to review the public records data. Because as we know, all of the search engines and the websites are pulling from that public records data to begin with. So if they can call the assessment office or even provide this uh, copy of an appraisal or the sketch that came along with their appraisal report. And they can bring it to the assessment office. They love the information. They'll make an update. They don't need to come into the house to verify that you have four bedrooms. They want their records to be accurate, and they don't have the time, and they're not invited in, usually. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I notice that a lot of the records now, as properties are being listed and sold, those sales are actually being recorded, complete with a picture, on the assessor's site now. So they are updating the data, utilizing some of the uh, listing service, the multiple listing service uh, for some of the more recent sales for 30 years ago, we're not going to find that necessarily. No, the assessor will start with a plan set for new construction and they will um, 
sketch the property on their software according to um, what the plan set says. And then when they make the actual site visit, which is quite infrequently, actually, people don't realize that the uh, ad valorem, which is a word for taxation, appraisers don't come out um, every year. They come out probably every four to six years, depending on which county they're working for. Um, So they will do the physical measurement the very first time when the house is completed to verify that plan set and then move on. Um, so those interior renovations, like you talked about your condo, um, they're not going to show. Yeah. Especially the interior, um, updates, the, the assessment office has no record of them unless you bring it to them. Well, one of the questions on our listing agreements, when we do take a, we list a home for sale is not only the square footage, but they also ask us what the source of that square footage was. And so best case scenario is always an appraisal. That would be our number one choice. Second choice would be the tax assessor. And realtors, as a matter of course, do not normally go out with a tape measure. Um, We don't want the liability. I'm not trained. I'm not a professional. I don't know all these rules that you're talking about. And so that isn't certainly something that you should rely on a realtor to do. Right. And there are some appraisers, and I I think most of us would be willing to do just what they call a measurement service, which is where you can call a fee appraiser up and they can come out and just do the measurement part of your property. So if you're a homeowner and you've run into this frustrating conundrum where you don't know which square footage record is correct or if any of them are correct, um, there are quite a few appraisers that are willing to just do measurement. That's good to know. We actually have run into issues in the past where a home has been listed for sale at a certain square footage, let's say 1,900 square feet. Uh, The property goes under contract. A buyer makes an offer. It's accepted. The lender sends the appraiser out, and the appraiser comes back and says that the square footage is 1,750. And the buyer gets quite upset because they are under contract thinking they're buying 1,900 square feet, and they're being told it's substantially less in that case. And while that is rare and doesn't happen often, when it does, it can be quite an expensive negotiation for both parties, trying to come up with something that's agreeable to both parties on that. So occasionally that does happen. So it is important to know at the time you list your property exactly what that square footage is. So that's good to know that that service is available. Right. And just looking at the public records, there's a sketch for um, every property. If you're a homeowner, you can look at your um, measurements online, and you can take a tape measure to the exterior of your building and just it, at least measure the walls that are easiest to get to um, and see if you're within a foot, I would say. If it's more than a foot, then uh, you could call the assessment office. And so I don't know if I think it's a bit significant enough, they might even be willing to put you on a revisit list. And there's certain times of the year that you can contest, I believe, yes. by filing. Yeah. Yeah, right. So you've you've negotiated issues with the home inspection, the appraisers come out, and maybe you have a discrepancy in square footage. Maybe this is a good segue for uh, concessions. What is what is a concession versus a uh, necessary repair? Um, maybe you guys can enlighten us about that. A uh, necessary repair, I'll go first, uh, would be something that is either required by the lender or is negotiated by the buyer uh, to be taken care of by the seller, hopefully prior to closing. I'm not a big fan of holdbacks and doing things after the property closes. It just makes things more difficult. If Back to my roof example, I'm going to go off track here for a second. If they did negotiate a holdback for the roof and let's say it was $10,000, the seller puts the money in escrow, 
the roofer gets up there and finds out that there's a huge problem with that goes well beyond the roof and that the cost to fix it is going to be $20,000. Now we have closed. The buyer's living in the house. The seller's moved to Tucson, Arizona. They've put $15,000 in escrow, but the bill is now $20,000. And this is after closing. And that is probably one of my worst nightmares is trying to go back and negotiate that. That's what we get paid to do. Uh, but it's really difficult to negotiate an after-the-fact repair. Is it even negotiable? Can't the seller just say no? It depends. It depends on how that holdback is written, which is why we always recommend that we have an attorney draft it. Uh, that can be a complicated thing that should address issues just like that. Fortunately, we rarely do holdbacks, so we don't have to address it very often. Um, but that can be a complicated addendum to draft. It's tricky to the holdbacks versus getting the work done prior to closing. I'm always a fan of getting the work done prior to closing, unless it is something like you have a failed septic drain field and it's December and it's been 22 degrees for the last three weeks. Uh, That's going to be a little bit difficult. But if there's any way to get it done or even extend closing to accommodate it, that is always my first choice. Um, It it definitely is. Yeah. And extending closing may be necessary because contractors are busy, right? Contractors and are very busy. Very busy. So getting somebody within your time frame to not only assess it, but give a bid and then repair it before your contractual timeline to close it is in many cases pretty difficult to do. So extending the timeline to closing, I think would be almost necessary in most instances. Well, it is, except Maybe the seller has a house that they're buying and they have a closing date on the house they're purchasing and that seller won't give them an extension. There's all kinds of moving parts, which is why it's always a great idea to have a real estate professional. There's my plug involved. Uh, Definitely is. A concession is something that can be negotiated at the time the contract is drafted where you ask a seller to maybe cover a percentage of your closing costs, maybe up to 3% of your closing costs. So for example... If the sales price is four hundred thousand and the loan amount is three hundred thousand, you could ask the seller in uh, under a lot of different loan programs to pay up to three percent or nine thousand dollars of your loan costs wow. um, for that. That would be an example of a concession. Another one may be we have that home inspection done and. There are issues that need to be repaired that are maybe major issues, but are not going to be something the lender is going to call out and won't hold up closing. But the buyer deems is critical. And I'm trying to think of an example of what that might be. Maybe it's just they, it's a 4,000 square foot house and they absolutely hate the flooring. Mm -hmm. It doesn't affect the structural integrity of the house because it has avocado shag carpet. But to the buyer, that is a, non-starter and they really would like a concession from the seller to re-carpet the house. So we may go try and negotiate a concession based on the buyer going out, choosing their carpet, having somebody come out and measure, give us a bid, and then go and try and negotiate for all or part of that, which does not have to be done prior to closing. Uh, That can certainly be done after closing. Maybe the buyer can hold off moving in while the house is re-carpeted. So there would be an example of a concession. The sales price doesn't change but the net to the seller on the bottom line and the money that the buyer has to bring in on the bottom line will balance out and and vary. So Lori, you just said something very important. The sales price doesn't change. Whenever um, appraisers see a concession noted in the MLS, um, very often, if there isn't a notation that explains what the concession is for, 
the agent uh, or agents involved will get a phone call or an email because the appraisers need to reconcile those concessions to make sure what they were for. So it is important um, when repair items are noted that a concession is money that's given back to the buyer uh, at closing. It is not a change in the sales price based on um, a needed repair or an expected repair in order to make the home um, marketable. So an appraiser wants to really look at a property and understand the condition it was in for the price that it sold for. It's good because it, it opens up a conversation line between the agent and the appraiser and a relationship can be built and conversation can be had about the terms for, of that sale. But um, it is it is something that appraisers are always watching out for. It's something that our lenders ask us to reconcile and to address if there have been concessions. Especially if there's large concessions in the sample or the example of my carpet with the it can get expensive. Well, green shag's my personal favorite. <laughs> I was kind of an orange shag girl, but actually I think I had lime green. Uh, appliance package. Um, that type of appliance package can run ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000. And there's nothing wrong with the appliances that are in there. They just don't happen to like white and they really want stainless appliances. So, And the sellers lived in the home for 25 years and the white was great, but it's time for some new ones. So they give a credit back to the buyer at closing so the buyer can go out and purchase their own brand new stainless appliance package. Right. Okay, great. So uh, a little while back, you were talking about giving yourself a pat on the back or, or realtors a pat on the back for um, why a realtor is important. So, you know, there are a lot of, um, this is kind of switching gears a little bit, but there are a lot of low cost or low fee brokerages out there the Redfins, um, the Ferras, the Fizbos, and then the great majority of real estate transactions are through traditional real estate companies like Remax, Windermere, et cetera. Yeah, do you have any input on, on I mean, what's the value? I, I believe in the value, but can you advocate for the value of having a dedicated full-time realtor advocating for a client? I I can. There's There's all different types of real estate companies, I guess they all have a place. Um, if someone is truly a do-it-yourselfer and thinks that they know how to negotiate contracts, negotiate appraisals, negotiate home inspections and title reports and escrow and a sales price and everything else, the low-cost broker may be the avenue for them. But I think the thing that that seller may not take into consideration, I have a saying that my brokers know well, the first step in the negotiation is negotiating the offer and the sales price. That sales price is going to be negotiated in a lot of cases several more times. For example, the home inspection comes in and then we need a roof replacement. Well, there may be a $10,000 negotiation there. And then the appraisal comes in and the appraisal comes in $20,000 low. Now we step back up to the plate and we have to negotiate that as well. Uh, maybe there's some liens on title that need to be cleared, or maybe there's some, maybe there's a $100,000 tax lien on the property and the seller doesn't have $100,000. Where do we go from here? I agree with you, Tim. I don't ever negotiate my own contracts. When I bought that condominium I'm talking about, I actually hired one of my brokers who is phenomenal to negotiate for me. I'm too close. I can't negotiate well on my own behalf. When someone chooses to list with what we call a limited service broker, um, totally legal, they're members of our multiple, they are basically hired to put your property in the multiple listing service and expose it that way. 
Beyond that, the seller is responsible for showing the property, letting buyers in, uh, for holding all their own open houses, buying their own signage, buying their own lockbox, doing a, a myriad of other things. But the more important thing is when a full-time realtor has a client who wants to make an offer on a limited service listing, that seller has no one really advocating and explaining that contract to them. The average contract today runs in excess of 20 pages. And that's fine print, legal ease. I spend hours and hours training my brokers on the ins and outs of those contracts. And then we'll just get those contracts down and they'll change them. Uh, I even have attorneys who contact me for help deciphering some of the terminology. And there's things in the contract that depending on is something as simple as a box being checked can swing the favor to the buyer or swing the favor to the seller. And it's a nuance. It's a small thing. But a seller who is doing something else as their full-time job, not learning real estate contracts, may miss that. And it may definitely work to their disadvantage. Um, we negotiate the contract numerous times. We fill out a lot of legalese. We basically oversee that contract from beginning to end. There's so many moving parts with dealing with lenders and appraisers and home inspectors and contractors. If we need bids, title companies, escrow, wiring money, um, there's a lot of moving parts. So like I said, I'm certainly not against them. I just would say fair warning and read up and be sure on what you're getting into. Other companies may not be limited service, but they just have a different business model. And there's a lot of different business models in the real estate industry coming out now. One of the business models is where a buyer may call on an ad on a website and they are given the information by a person who just, all they do is answer phones. They are then handed off to a showing specialist who will go out and show them the home. And once they pick a home they want to buy, then they are handed off to someone else to write the contract. Once the contract is accepted, they're then handed off to a transaction coordinator and so on down the road. So the difficulty there, or the thing I think can be frustrating, I've been told, is that you just start building a relationship with one person and you're handed off to the next person. There is cost savings involved in that, but that's the trade-off. There's always a trade-off. Sounds like there'd be a big gap in the efficiency, too. Sometimes you have to backtrack in that process that you just described, where you've seen the house, but the person showing you the property maybe can't answer any of your questions. So you have to remember all of your questions until you get moved on to the next step in that. And that sounds like it could be um, challenging. The person who's letting the appraiser in may not be the person who sold the house. They've never seen it before. They're just there to open a door and sit with the appraiser or the home inspector while they do it, but they don't have any relationship with the buyer. Um, they've never seen the property before. And then heaven forbid, for whatever reason, the contract fails and maybe the appraisal, maybe the financing, maybe the home inspection, whatever. And then the buyer's back to square one. They get to start the process all over again. Here's the bottom line. In my experience, I've been doing this for 15 years. Realtors work really, really hard. The best realtors do. And that's what you want. In 2001, we sold a house kind of FISBO or through one of these like low fee. I think we lost $60,000 on that transaction that I feel like if we were represented, we would have priced it differently and sold it quicker. And ever since that time, Liz and I, we're savvy in this business. We've bought and sold dozens of homes. I'm a home inspector. She's a real estate appraiser. We still use realtors to represent us because 
in as much as we think we're really savvy, um, a, a good, hardworking realtor that is advocating for you, crossing all the T's, dotting all the I's, and taking you from A to Z is really, really important in ways that may not be obvious to even myself. So um, I can't more highly advocate for Thank you. a full-time realtor. I've been doing this. I got licensed in 1979, so I've been doing it for a day or two. And just having someone like me as the owner to fall back on when they have a question, or they may know the answer, but they just want a second party to bounce it off of to make sure, because this is the largest investment of your life. And we can't afford to make a mistake. So if we can bring in a third-party professional to help advocate for our client, home inspector, appraiser, attorney, we're happy to do it. We welcome it. We'll encourage it. Um, but we're the one who's really driving the bus. We're the one who's holding it all together and watching all the moving parts, watching the deadlines. There's some critical deadlines. Uh, the home inspection, for example. Most contracts default to having 10 days to have a home inspection completed and if you miss that deadline, you, in effect, waive your home inspection. So if you're having a home inspection done and you're representing yourself in a transaction um, and you don't know those deadlines, then it can come and go and you may give away your right to be able to go back and negotiate any repairs on the property. It's, it's critical and it's expensive. And another thing that just pops into mind, I mean, the realtors that have established relationships with professionals like home inspectors, I can tell you, um, you know, some realtors will say, hey, we're coming to terms on a, on, on a property, we think, in the next three days. Can you pencil me five days from now? And I'll do that as a courtesy to realtors that I work with. Whereas I wouldn't do that for somebody that I have never worked with before. So what you may get stuck with is you have that 10-day window and your most experienced inspectors are going to be booked out and you're going to have somebody that's newer, which you know may be fine, but it's more of a risk. Well, and the other thing in this hot market that we were in, one of our negotiating tactics was to say, we already have our home inspector lined up. So it's Sunday afternoon. If you sign my offer today, I've already talked to Tim and he's available at 11 o'clock tomorrow. So we'll have our home inspection done. I'm not going to string you out for 10 days. We do want to have a home inspection done, but we're not going to go the whole 10 days or 15 days or however long it can take. And so that is a relationship. This whole business is relationship based. It really, truly is. And there are a lot of tricks to ensuring smooth sailing from A to B and getting the best result for all parties involved. And that's why having a realtor, I think, is really important. And I think we mentioned these little tidbits of information almost every podcast, but please have CO detectors on every level of your house. Yes, please. Please have smoke detectors um, near every bedroom. Please double strap your water heater, if, especially if it's not a tankless variety, if it's the electric um, round tank strap it at the top and the or bottom. Um, all of the people involved in your transaction want it to go smoothly. They want, they don't want to have to come back for reinspections. They don't want to charge you for another home, a home re, home inspection, reinspection, or an appraisal, what we call a repair or an update that has to be prepared. We want to see the, um, the property as clean and appraisers have to make notes of safety and structural things. So they'll be looking for handrails and loose deck boards and railings, especially if you're, on a second floor. So um, we always try to throw those into every podcast so that um, maybe it will just become second nature. <laughs> okay. Is there anything else that uh, you guys would like to add to this uh, podcast that I haven't covered? 
Anything that you, so you already addressed your top, you know, the thing about the appraisers, what, what is typically, um, people ask who, who to contact if they have a question about the appraisal. So that goes through the lender. It's also one of the questions that I'll ask a lender is, you know, who are your list? And, and that's why it's so important. I believe on a, on a side note to that, to use a local appraiser, because I have run into issues with some of these online lenders who will contact an appraiser out of Olympia to come up and do an appraisal in Blaine. I literally, this is a true story, had an appraiser one time from out of area, well out of area, who made a notation in the appraisal and actually dinged the value because the property was, are you ready? Too close to the Canadian border. I said, our entire county is on the Canadian border. That, I, I, that is a true story. And so the underwriter who reviews the appraiser for appraisal for the lender, actually, we had problems. And I do believe we ended up pulling out of that lender and using somebody local. Yep. So use your local lender. Use your local use your local vendors. Use your local home inspectors, your local realtor, your local appraisers. Absolutely. Appraisers actually have to sign in their report that they have what we call geographic competency. Otherwise, <laughs> they are not supposed to take the appraisal assignment. This was a while ago, so that may have been before that came into being. But I, I that struck me, and I have never forgot that comment. Good. Okay, it's a wrap. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a thumbs up and comment as it really helps us build audience and get our message out. Special thanks to Lori Reese with Remax. You can reach Lori at 360-312-4000 or email Lori Reese, L-O-R-I-R-E-E-C-E at remax.net. Also, special thanks to David Baker with Seller Rat Recording, www.sellerratrecording.com. If you're looking for a top-notch real estate appraiser, please call Elizabeth Hance at 360-317-5845 or www.allislandsappraisal.com. If you're looking for a top-notch home inspector, please call me, Tim Hance, at 360-298-1163 or www.allislandsinspections.com. We welcome your feedback and comments. If you'd like us to cover a specific topic or know someone you'd like to have us interview, please let us know. Thanks again for listening.